All right, Exodus chapter 10. I believe Henry taught last week. Uh, he covered the first part. I felt sorry for him because the rest of the story is the remainder of this chapter. And it's kind of a, a cliffhanger, right? It's like watching a TV program. You only catch part of it, and that's it. You, you have to come back the next week. So, well, here we are in Exodus chapter 10. We're going to start with verse 12. And it says here, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, all that the, the hail has left. And so Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested in all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously, there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb of the land, and all the fruit of the trees which the hell had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, hey, I have sinned against the Lord your God, and against you. Now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God that He may take away from me this death only. So he went from out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may be even felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They, not, they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. But Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. Even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, take heed to yourself, and see my face no more. For in the day that you see my face, you shall die. And so Moses said, You have spoken well. I will never see your face again. You know... um, Pharaoh's an interesting guy. You know, I, I, I look at Pharaoh and I begin to think of history. I think of all the men who have had power. I mean, who is the, the first great king who had all power? Nebuchadnezzar is who, I, who comes to mind. We know through Scripture that he is the head of gold. And we know as he, as he uh, went out his window and looked at all the hanging gardens in his garden, he looked around and he said, Oh, look at all that I have put together here, right? And what happened that day? He got on all fours and became a beast for seven years. He ate grass. His, he grew hair like a fur. He was like a big fur ball. And his nails uh, grew out. He was, yes, like a chia pet. He was, he was humbled. Then you have people like Hitler, Mussolini. All these men in history who have power. And they're intoxicated by it. Caesar Nero, you know, here he is, he's, he's right in his gardens at night, and he lights his garden at night by torching Christians on stakes. A man consumed with power, he's intoxicated with it. Men have a hard time dealing with that kind of power. Look at Hollywood. Look at these men with all the wealth and power, and they can't cope with it. Could you imagine? I mean... I look at these NBA players we're talking about today, multi-millionaires, $20 million contracts, $30 million contracts. 
to a 20-year-old. That would destroy you. And here we are, set before us as Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And we're going to look at three areas tonight. We're going to look at the devoured nation, verses 12 through 15. We're going to look at the disingenuous king, verses 16 through 20. And we're going to see the darkness felt in verses 21 through 29. We're going to look at the devoured nation here in verses 12 through 15. He says here, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land to eat every herb of the land, and all that the hail has left behind. Again, God directs Moses to stretch out his hand over the land, pronouncing once again an inevitable plague, pronouncing judgment. To me, it's interesting to see how Moses' relationship with the Lord has developed since his first interaction with him back at the burning bush. There the Lord revealed how he had seen the oppression of his people and how he was going to use Moses to bring the people out of Egypt. And what was, what was Moses' reply back then? <laughs> Who am I? Who am I to, to bring the people out of Egypt? I, I, I can't do it. I'm just a shepherd. I'm an 80-year-old shepherd. Then Moses says, but, but, but suppose they won't believe me. Or, or maybe they won't listen to my voice. Suppose they say, you know what? The Lord hasn't appeared to you. What have you been smoking? What are you talking about? You're loony, Moses. And then in the same conversation, Moses says, hey, hey I, I am not eloquent of speech. My tongue is slow. I stutter, man. I don't have this ability. God, you're picking the wrong guy. And so we find him here by the burning bush. And he is trying to tell the Lord, you picked the wrong guy. I don't have the ability. I'm an old man now. I don't have resources. I don't have men who are, who are capable of helping me. All I got is his staff. That's all I have. How do you expect me to bring out over 2 million people, 2 million slaves out of Egypt. You stand back. That's a daunting task. How are you going to do that? Later we read how he goes into Pharaoh's court. And we all know that that meeting didn't go too well, did it? Pharaoh decreed after that meeting that no straw should be provided to the Jews to make bricks. They had to go gather straw for themselves and they had to meet the same quota. Didn't go so well. It further burdened the people. They came before Moses and they complained, what did you just come out here? I mean, look at, we're in a worse position now, Moses. And, and, and I'm sure Moses is thinking, see, Lord, I told you. Should have left me out in the desert. I was fine out there. And now the people are looking to me and they're blaming me. It's, it's this pressure, Lord. I didn't ask for this. Lord, why? Why have you brought me onto this people to bring more trouble? Why is it you have sent me, Lord? Why? I told you it wasn't a good idea. Again, his confidence in the Lord is not there. And then the plagues begin. One after another after another. And I think with each successive plague, Moses' confidence in the Lord begins to build. We no longer see him going back and forth, peddling, stammering, or questioning the Lord. We see him simply obeying, right? We don't see him going back and questioning, Lord, come on. No, he says, all right. He stretches his hand out. He stretches his hand out. Plague after plague. And I think his confidence is building. And that's, again, a great lesson for all of us. Um, We've all seen the process in our, own, in our own lives and how God works out certain things in our own life and how God is capable. And we find God instructing Moses what to do and Moses obeys. He knows God will perform it. And he has, again, he's beginning to have confidence in what God can do. And again, if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time and someone approaches you and says, you know, I'm having this difficulty. What is usually our first reaction? Hey, trust in the Lord. 
Seek the Lord. Focus on the Lord. Why? Because we've seen our own lives, haven't we? We know what God can do. I know what He can do in my life. I've seen it time and time again. So when I tell people, it's not just because, hey, I don't want to deal with the issue or I want to skirt the issue. I'm really trying to direct people to the Lord so God can do it. You just have to have confidence in the Lord. And as time goes by, your confidence in the Lord will build. Moses has seen it, and I'm sure many of you in this room have seen it. You've seen what God has done in your life. I can look at many of you in this room, and I can remember the first time you came to church, and you came with nothing. Nothing. You got saved, and God turns you around, and, and man, now you, you have, actually, your, your life is cleaned up. You have an apartment. You have a home. You have cars. You have a job. God's provided. Matter of fact, I don't see anybody here starving. God's been good to you. He's been good to Moses. And he's going to be good to the people. So too with Moses again. I'm doubtful Moses would stretch out his hand over the land if he knew God was not going to perform it. Could you imagine he go out there, I don't know, he didn't do it before, I'm not going to go do this again. He looks silly. But he does it with confidence. He knows God is going to perform it. Do you lack confidence in the Lord today? You know, maybe he's starting to call you out. Maybe he wants to begin to use you, but you're hesitant. Because you're looking at your abilities. You're looking at what you're able to do, and you're thinking, you know what, I'm going to come up short. God's not concerned. Let me tell you something. If he is calling you, he is going to enable you. He's going to use everything about you and he's going to go above and beyond what you think you're capable of doing. Because let me tell you something. He's not trusting in you. He's not trusting in your ability. He's trusting what he can do through you. So the question is, do you lack confidence in what he can do? Do you lack confidence in the Lord? If he's calling you, that means he's going to enable you. He's not going to call you to failure. Let's look at the next plague here. A plague of locusts. A plague of locusts is a devastating natural disaster. These natural infestations have been feared and revered throughout history. And unfortunately, they still wreak havoc today. Locusts are related to grasshoppers. And the two insects, you know, they look very similar. However, locusts have a behavior that is completely different than a grasshopper. Locusts are sometimes solitary insects. But locusts, again, have a behavioral phase called the gregarious phase. So when environmental conditions produce many green plants and promote breeding, locusts congregate into thick, mobile, ravenous swarms. Locust swarms devastate crops, cause major agricultural damage, and of course, human misery. Famine and starvation usually follow. They occur in many parts of the world today. But today, locusts are most destructive in sustenance farming regions of Africa. The desert locust is notorious. They're found in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. They inhabit about 60 countries and cover one-fifth of the world's land. One-fifth. Desert locust plagues may threaten the economic livelihood of one-tenth of the world's population. And this is, an, this is a crazy stat. A desert lo- locust can swarm, or they can swarm up to 460 square miles. They can cover up to that much area. 460 square miles in size. And pack between 40 and 80 million locusts in less than half a square mile. Think about that. Half a square mile, 80 million locusts. Each can eat its own weight in plants each day. So a swarm of such size could eat 423 million pounds of plants every day. Like the individual animals within them, locust swarms are typical in motion and can cover vast distances. In 1954, a swarm flew from northwest Africa to Great Britain. In 1988, another made the lengthy trek from West Africa to the Caribbean. In short, they're voracious and destructive. 
And God is going to unleash the greatest horde of locusts that Egypt will ever experience in its history. They will devour all the vegetation that survived the hailstorm that fell previously. All the trees, all the herbs are going to be devoured. Gone. Nada. Nothing's going to be left. And here we are in verse 13. He says, So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. 24 hours. And when it was morning, the east, and east wind brought the locusts, and the locusts went up all over the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. Think of the scene. Moses stretches out his hands over the nation, and in his hands is the shepherd's staff. Think about that. We know here in Exodus that, what, the Egyptians loathed the shepherds, right? And here, here is a symbol, a shepherd's staff. It's not a sword, it's not a spear, but a shepherd's staff. He doesn't have an army, there's no machine guns, a shepherd's staff. The very symbol they loathe. It's a little bit of irony thrown in there. God is confounding the wisdom of the world. In the moment Moses stretches out his hands, an easterly wind picks up, and we're told the wind blows all day and all night, and in the morning, they arrive, the locusts. Imagine what Egypt looks like by this time. You know, I was thinking about this. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine, but what, what did Egypt look by this time? Remember, the river had turned to blood, killing a lot of the aquatic life, the fish. They were hit by frogs. They were hit by lice. Now, we don't know if those were actually ticks or fleas, but you pick. I mean, lice, ticks, fleas, doesn't make a difference, right? They're equally all bad. They were hit with flies. All their livestock died from the pestilence. All of it. You have to think about that. All their livestock died. Now, we read that later on that they had cattle but that means that they may have got livestock from other parts of the region and brought them in. But they killed, it killed everything. All their goats, all their herds, everything died. What was that like? The stench of the land. I can imagine what that was like. Killed their, killed their, their livestock. And then the boils on every man, every beast. And then the hailstorm, which decimated Egypt. Egypt's been devastated. And please note, Egypt was not devastated again by a standing army, but rather through a shepherd and his God. And what was that like for the Egyptians? And what was that like for the Israelites? What was that like for Moses? Each one stood from a certain vantage point. And again, I wonder what that was like for the Egyptians. One day, life was going great. The city was thriving. Egypt was certainly a world power. And out of the desert comes this old man with his brother wielding a shepherd's staff. People were living under the decadence and opulence of, of Egypt. People were marrying, having children. Relationships were developing. People were going to school. Just like our day, right? It's day-to-day -day events. They're doing their thing. I don't, I don't think they expected the world to be different. I think, you know, people were falling in love. They were dating. They were marrying. Kids were growing up. You know, husbands and wives were fighting. It was, it was daily life. And then one day, the world they knew turned upside down. Everything they enjoyed was gone. And I wonder if any of the Egyptians sacrificed their, do their gods as the, the plagues were taking place. I wonder if they were appealing to their gods that, hey, hey, get in here. Help us out. We're, we're being decimated here. What's going on? And they're hoping for a response. And guess what? That response never came. It was a no. There's nothing there. And these are the gods that were raised to worship since they were kids. And they were beginning to discover there's nothing there. What a rude awakening. I mean, I remember as a Catholic, praying, praying to statues. Nothing was there. It was dead. 
And here's this old shepherd along with his brother. And they're defying all the grandeur and magnificence that typified Egypt. They endured the bloody water, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the boils, the hail falling from the heavens in Egypt. The splendor of the desert is dangling by a string. And what's left is about to be taken away. Now what about the Israelites? We know that the Lord has he's made a distinction between them and the Egyptians. They've been insulated from the devastation. And I could just imagine what it must have what they must have seen and felt throughout this whole ordeal. Now, we don't know how long Moses had been in Egypt since his return. Could have been there for weeks, could have been there months. Some speculate it could have been a year. Could have been. You know, we just assume that the plagues happen in rapid succession, but we don't know definitively. Also, you ever ask yourself, what were the Jews doing during the time of these plagues? What were they doing? You know, we're not told. If you think about it, we're not told what they were doing. And I wonder what it was like for them as they witnessed all the plagues unfold before their eyes. And take note, they saw the people that they knew personally. You know, they saw Jeff, they saw Mary, they saw Lou, they saw all these people. These, these were the Egyptians that they were acquainted with. And they saw them go through all the plagues. They saw them covered in lice. They saw them covered in flies. They saw them cover every part of the body. Could you imagine seeing a little kid covered in flies, in lice? They saw the pain and the anguish. They saw it from a vantage point. So, and they knew these people. And you know, you and I know people in the world and we see what they go through and we grieve for them, don't we? Even though we know they walk in darkness, we know they're in the wrong and yet we feel for them because they're tasting judgment already. And they don't have to. And yet here the Jews are standing from a vantage point and they're seeing them go through the process. They're seeing their kids. Now, some, sometimes we can look at some people and go, yeah, they deserve it. They deserve judgment. But if you're honest with yourself... You don't understand. You don't understand grace then, because I wouldn't want that for myself. You see, we want people to turn, but now they're starting to taste judgment. They're starting to see all these families going through the judgment. They saw all the anguish, and here they are, insulated, protected. So, what was it like for them as they saw all the Egyptians' livestock? Livestock die, seeing the hail fall from the heavens and destroy their fields. You know what they understood? I think what you and I both understand, their livelihood is gone. I assure you, if you saw a business explode and someone's home explode on fire, their job is gone, their home is gone, they have nothing. So everything the Egyptians grasped, grasped to was gone. Their livelihood is gone. It's destroyed. The tables have been turned. And for the first time, they were experiencing the power of God. You know, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, The Lord knows how to de- deliver the godly out of temptations or trials and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And the scriptures are filled with examples of God's deliverance. God preserved Noah during the great flood, right? God preserved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the fiery trial, didn't He? God preserved Daniel from the lion's den, right? So again, the Scriptures are filled with examples for what? You and I to know that God works in our behalf. He knows how to deliver the godly out of trials. But sometimes we forget that, don't we? Oh, Lord, here I'm at work and someone's picking on me. You know? Well, that person over here doesn't like me. I'm at school and, you know, and, and there's all this pressure. and We think that's really a trial. We don't, this is Disneyland. Go look at Europe right now. Go look at Christians who are living in that part of the world. Now, I don't say that to say, hey, you know, put this guilt on you or just to manipulate you. But that's the reality. These people are, are, are living where the rubber meets the road. Again, I'm not trying to minimize your situation. But don't maximize the situation either. Don't magnify it. It's not a big deal. 
God's on the throne. Notice that this locust infestation is the worst infestation in their recorded history. In verse 15, we're told here, For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb of the land, and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Egypt. Agricultural Egypt is decimated. Not only are the crops and fields destroyed, and what was left is now eaten away. I mean, it's just one thing after another. They're pounded, everything's destroyed, and guess what? Here comes the locust, and they just come in for the haul. They clean everything out. In the 1930s, here in America and parts of Canada and the neighboring states, they were affected by the great dust storms, destroying much of the agriculture. These winds created dust storms, <clears throat> destroying most of, the, most of the agriculture. They created uh, dust storms as a result of the droughts that they were experiencing. Eyewitnesses were quoted as, as saying that these dust storms were so severe that they blotted out the sun. The drought and erosion of the Dust Bowl affected over a hundred million acres. It's centered around the panhandle of Texas and Oklahoma. And as a re result, tens of thousands of families abandoned their farms and they migrated to California. And since then, of course, there have been agricultural innovations dealing with soil erosion. This wasn't a dust cloud. This cloud was alive and it was hungry. The locust population was so dense it darkened the land. It was so thick it blotted out all the ambient light of the sun. And I could just imagine wave after wave of locusts buzzing in and consuming whatever vegetation that was left in the land. And if you heard locusts before, if you've seen video, you could hear the sound of the buzzing they make and the eating they make. And I could just imagine as the Jews sat there and they're just thinking, man, look at the devastation. Look at the devastation. And seeing the people flail and run and try to find cover and we know it entered their homes. Severe, severe devastation. They were everywhere, over everything, consuming everything in sight. I mean, I can't even handle a fly in my house. Can you imagine? I mean, locusts everywhere. Here they are trying to cover the windows, trying to cover the doors, but they're still getting in. And no doubt the Egyptians were in anguish, seeing their livelihood destroyed, seeing their families affected. And I can only imagine they were overcome with a sense of hopelessness as they stood and watched all these things. I mean, what can they do? What can anyone do? And yet, there was more to come, wasn't there? Egypt's fresh food supply was gone. They had sown to the wind, and now they were reaping the whirlwind. You know, as I mentioned earlier, this must have been an interesting, interesting dynamic for the Israelites to experience. One group was experiencing hardship and hopelessness, while the other group was chartering into new territory, one of hope. One to see that God was working on their behalf. They had never sensed that before. Most of these people had lived a life of servitude. Making bricks. You know, working the fields. That's what they were. Slaves. What an amazing thing to experience when you know God is the one going before you and you're just a spectator. You guys ever go through that? Where you realize that, you know what, God is... You sit there and go... I'm not doing anything here. And yet, I know God is going before me. And that's exactly what they were experiencing for the first time. That God was working on their behalf. And they're seeing their Egyptian gods being judged. One after another after another. And it's an amazing thing because we're, there's nothing about us that's desirable, is there? There's nothing worth, worth saving. There's no redeemable value. But yet we have a Savior who says, I love you. I know there's nothing about you that's desirable, but I love you. What an amazing attribute of God. That doesn't change about Him. 
That we have a heavenly father that says, you know, the conditions don't change. I still love you. I created you for myself. Psalm 37.3 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. I love that. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. God is faithful to us, isn't He? He provides for all of us. Let's look at our second point, the disingenuous king, verse 16 through 20. It says, And Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. (laughs) Well, Pharaoh here is finally saying the right words with his lips, but his heart said otherwise. The man was insincere. Now, speaking of insincerity, how many of us here are guilty of being insincere? (laughs) It's like Diego was sharing earlier. You know, he's a kid at the the youth retreat. And uh, he's there. and, and, And as he's talking to the kids, he catches this whiff. Man, I knew I took a shower. Did, I, is it my clothes? And he, no, it's not my clothes. And he keeps catching this whiff, like just bad body odor. And finally he gets up and he says, all right, guys, you know what? I hate to bring this up, but any of you here, if you've not taken a shower, please take a shower tonight because I'm sorry, but I, I'm, I'm starting to smell it. And this one kid goes, yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't take a shower. And then, okay, okay, I get that. And then another kid, yeah, me neither. Me neither. I mean, and it was hilarious. He's like, you know, stop right there. He says, I'm not trying to out anybody. I'm just trying to say, if you have to take a shower, please take a shower. And, and again, it's, you know, here, here Pharaoh, he's not going to out himself. He's not going to say he's insincere. Okay? I think many of us have been insincere in our life, even as a Christian. You know, my wife and I had this conversation recently where, you know, um, and I'm sure you've had it too. Where, you know, there's somebody in the body or someone at work, uh, in the workplace. Um, certainly nobody here. But uh, where you, you say, you know, I got to love that person. Yeah, I got to love that person. And I finally told my wife, I said, you know, we really have to stop saying that. I said, because that's really insincere. I, I understand what we're, we're both trying to say here. But instead of saying, I have to love them, let's just love them. Forget the fact that, oh, I have to love them. That's a given. But let's, let's just love them. And you know what? All those feelings of having to have gone away. It's become genuine versus being plastic. You know, and, and we get caught up in that and being insincere. And yet the scripture tells us, how do we know that we're his disciples? By the love we have for one another. And we come off very plasticky. So rather than having to feel like I have to, I, I, I do. I just love, I love those people that I feel that have wronged me. I get you. So this is the second time he confesses his sin. He, he confesses his sin in Exodus chapter 9, verse 27. And notice also Pharaoh acknowledges who he has sinned against. He has sinned both against the Lord and Moses. Against both of them. And, and also... He, he, this is the third time he requests Moses to intercede on his behalf. He tells him back in Exodus 8.28, 9.28 and here. He says, go before the Lord and intercede on my behalf. Interesting. Interesting because here, here Pharaoh's angling here. He, he's taking what he thinks he's, he, uh, he's both fooling God and Moses. And, you know, and what I've discovered from people who take this route is it ultimately affects them. And also, it's a reflection of who you are. You know, C.S. Lewis said, integrity is doing the right thing when no one is looking. Okay? Pharaoh's insincere. It's like my kids. You know, uh, usually when I confront them uh, about an issue, it's because I already know all about it. I already know all the facts. And so when I confront them, and I, I, I see that they're already taking the Adam approach. Okay? They're trying to cover or blame somebody else. They're trying to hide. I, I, I tell them, stop right there. Choose your words wisely because I already know. If I question you about something, it's because I already know. So choose your words wisely. They just sit there and, okay, let me think about this. So you, you're not going to hide anything from me. I already know. 
I just want you, I want to redirect you and bring you to a place where you're right. There's, it's not necessary for you to cover up and hide. That's not the way to go. You begin that path, it's a reflection of who you are. You're a liar. You're insincere. But hey, we're talking about the king here, right? He should be trusted. After all, he's the one who called him up. Think about the, the mental process he went through. I mean, uh, he came to a place where he refused to go before. He's acknowledging his sin. And he's hoping to pull the wool over their eyes. He's insincere and God knows it. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 17. Now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that He may take away from me this death only. <laughs> entreat the Lord. The, the Hebrew word afar simply means to pray for. Pharaoh wants Moses to pray on his behalf. And what I find interesting is he says that God would forgive his sin only this once. And that once right there is he doesn't realize it's going to come back to bite him. But for what purpose? Why did he want him to, to pray for him? That he would not die. His back was against the wall. He finally says, hey Mo, come up here. Go before the Lord. Pray for me. He doesn't ask Moses how he could be forgiven or what he must do. He says, you go and intercede for me. He's short-sighted. I think a sincere person is going to say, listen, Moses, I have sinned. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? Don't go before me. What do I need to do? That's why when we have an altar call here, it's personal. It's you and God. What do I need to do? Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart, Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. It's personal. Don't go intercede for me. Intercession is when I need help for, for an issue. Yeah, we intercede for one another. But we're talking about the forgiveness of sins. And so he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. Such an interesting little verse. And packed. Why? Why do I say that? What I love is Moses didn't say, Are you serious? Are you for real? I mean, are you sure about this, Pharaoh? He just takes it at face value. And that's what we should do as believers. Yet, I know we're not to be naive. However, we're hopeful, aren't we? We're hopeful because we know human nature. We encounter all the time uh, here in, at church, those who raise our hands during service, who want to get right with the Lord. And, and sometimes, you know, we look at them skeptically, don't we? We're like, yeah, I know that guy. You know, he's going out there, but uh, I know how he is. But the, again, the issue is we cannot see their heart. We see people get up, they make a confession, they, they want to get right. But our problem is we can't see the heart. Our problem is we are skeptical. And sometimes we don't want to believe. And yet Moses here takes it at face value. Doesn't question it. Doesn't question Pharaoh. He takes it by faith. And I began to think about this. Here's the king of Egypt. He has enslaved your people. He's dealt with them with a brutal hand. He's abused them. He's abused his power. And now he's asking you. Let me put you in Moses' seat. He's asking you, pray for me. Intercede for me. How do you go about doing that? How do you go about seeking the Lord and saying, okay, Lord, how do I pray for this guy? How do I pray for this heathen? He's got our people enslaved. How do you begin the process? What kind of things would you tell the Lord? All right, Lord, I guess I got to pray for this heathen. Lord, can you relent the plague on behalf of this guy? How would you begin that prayer? I really began to think about it. That's pretty challenging. Because you know God can forgive him, right? And you can see the atrocities he's committed. This guy's walked arrogantly. He's walked around Egypt. He is the king. He walks like a God among men. And now he's saying, pray for me. Entreat me that I would not die this death. 
I don't know. That's a tough one. Notice here he he doesn't consult with the Lord reluctantly, nor does he call on Pharaoh's past insincerity. He didn't say, you're a liar, you're a hypocrite. I hope you burn. And neither does Moses lay down conditions before he intercedes on, on his behalf. Why? Because he doesn't know what's going on in his heart. Though he knows he's been insincere in the past, but maybe, maybe, just maybe, this is a turning point. And, and we do that as believers. We see a knucklehead. We see people that we go, man, mistake after mistake after mistake. Maybe they'll get it this time. And that's what we pray for. We're hoping they'll turn. He is interceding on behalf of the enemy. On behalf of the enemy. You know, Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, but love your enemies. In fact, I can stop there. I hate that one. I do. But yet the scripture says, love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and evil. God is kind to the unthankful and evil. Why? Because He knows, He knows that will impact them. God's grace and His love. Do you pray for those who don't like you? Do you pray for those who treat you unfairly? Do you pray for your wife? I mean, not your enemy, I'm your wife. I say it because, you know, I say it because so many men that I talk to, when they sit in my office, look at their wife as if they're the enemy. And I actually tell them before they leave, you know, the scripture says we're to love our enemies, but you look at your wife as if she's your enemy. So if this is my wife, and not my enemy, and the scripture says to love my enemy, then maybe I should be loving my wife. Okay, all right. All right, I'll think. What do you think about it? We're not going to talk about this anymore. You need to love your wife. Hmm. Instead of strategizing how we can get back at folks who abuse us, how about we adopt a new strategy and love on them? Again, that's something the world is not used to. And frankly, they don't know how to cope with. There isn't a strategy against it. Think about that. There isn't a strategy for your enemy. The moment you love them, how they respond. There isn't a strategy for that. And if you do, what have you lost? What a great thing to see when you see your enemy enduring a hardship and you come alongside, tell them you'll be praying for them and loving on them. What a great thing to see. It's disarming and convicting. Anybody can argue, but not, not everybody loves. Again, what an important lesson for us. That though we know peop how people are fickle and how they can be, we shouldn't be. We should pray expectantly. Moses is 80 years old. He could have said, drop dead, you and everyone in the nation, you deserve it. But he doesn't do that, does he? And part of me feels, you know, as I was going through this passage, part of me feels that he doesn't do that because he remembered what he did 40 years earlier. He killed a man. He killed a man with his hands. Now, I don't know about you, but I think if you sit behind a, a rifle, put a man between your crosshairs from distance, it's a lot easier pulling a trigger than killing a man with your hands. You talk to anybody who's ever killed a man with his hands, it's, it's a graphic scene. And it's a lifelong memory you'll never forget. And I, I can only imagine as, as Moses is dealing with this man, he has seen a man tasting judgment. And like God, they're giving him every opportunity to turn. But ultimately, we know he won't to his condemnation. Moses' intercession can be seen throughout the whole narrative. You see God's grace and mercy. He doesn't argue with Pharaoh. He doesn't refuse his request. And I think he re he's resolved in his heart that this is solely God's department. So I intercede and pray. Let God handle that department. It's not up to me to judge. 
For me to pray, what's that? God desires that we intercede for people. That's our responsibility. What an amazing example of intercessory prayer. Praying for your enemy. Praying for the king of Egypt. Heavy. Verse 19, And the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away, and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in the territory of Egypt. The Lord responds to Moses' intercession. The Lord stirred up a westerly wind and removed every single locust and blew them all the way to the Red Sea, and not one locust remained. Again, who has the power to do this? They certainly didn't have it, right? The locusts were there. They couldn't get rid of them. You couldn't call you know, a pest guy to get rid of them. There are millions and millions of locusts consuming everything. Exodus 9.29 tells us that the earth belongs to the Lord, and more importantly, not to Pharaoh. God's in control. Problem is, Pharaoh should have acknowledged that this isn't a magician's trick. And furthermore, Moses never said he was the one performing the miracle. You notice that? Whenever you find this encounter with Pharaoh and Moses, Moses doesn't say, yeah, it's me. No, no, no. He points to the Lord. God says, let my people go. God says, let my people go. God says, let my people go. You refuse? You refuse? Okay. Plague after plague after plague. God is the one who gets the credit. He's the one who's doing these plagues. He's the one dispensing judgment. I'm not. I'm just a vessel. I'm an old man with a stick. Again, Pharaoh should have acknowledged that this was a supernatural event. Again, could you imagine what Egypt looked like after the locusts left? Picture. The environment was lush and green. The next moment, it's bare and naked. What was that like? I mean, I'm sure that just boggled the mind. Man, we're destroyed. Our city, our nation is gone. It's bare. And Pharaoh didn't respond with remorse or at least with a sense of appreciation that God in fact heard that he responded. And verse 20 gives us insight as to how he did respond. It says here, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the children of Israel go. He hardened his heart and refused to let the people go. Now, if you're with us in Exodus chapter 7, we discuss the hardening process, but I'll remind some of you here, if you weren't here, uh, the word for hardened in the Hebrew is the word kazak. It means to strengthen, to make firm, to solidify. In our modern vernacular, it's to harden like cement. But also in chapter 7, there's, there's another word for, for harden. It's the word kasha. And that word means to be severe towards, to be tough, to be hard with. And I, I mention this because there are folks out there who would like to make the argument that God is in absolute control and we cannot violate His decrees. My problem with that is it negates one's free will. And that's a problem because it creates this idea that Pharaoh is simply a puppet and a victim of God's judgment. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says this, This is a message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. There is no sin in God. Because what you're doing ultimately is you're charging God with sin. When that rape occurs, or that murder occurs, God okays it. Therefore, who's responsible? God is, right? Because He allowed it. That's the, that's the logical progression. It takes away man's free will. Conversely, it's a very, very shallow view of God. The, the God of the Bible says He is in control. And additionally, He gives man the ability to choose which God is bigger? Here's a question. The one who says, I control every action in the universe and nothing acts outside my decrees? Or the one that says, I control everything in the universe, however, I still allow man his free will? Which one's the bigger God? I'll take B. He's in control of everything and yet gives me the ability to choose. That's the bigger God. That's the all-powerful God. Pharaoh's heart is already inclined not to let the people go. And in effect, God knows he's not going to change his heart over the issue. 
So what does he do? He reaffirms his position. He solidifies his position. He says, Pharaoh, if this is the direction you're going to go, we're going to solidify your position. Have at it. You're going to be rebellious. I'm going to strengthen your resolve. You're going, you're going west, son? Okay, we're going to make you go west. He reaffirms his position. And folks, that is a scary place to be. To that place where you, your heart is so hardened to the love and mercy of God. That's a scary place to be. One all it has to do is look to the book of Revelation. Go to the book of Revelation and you see there the judgments of God. And they almost mirror the plagues that we see here in the book of Exodus, right? And what does it say? After plague, after plague, after judgment, after judgment, it says they refuse to repent of their deeds. The judgments didn't matter. The hotter, the harder they were, it did not matter because their heart got to a place where men refused. They refused to repent. The problem is the heart. That's the problem. Again, it's a scary place to be. And how much more for believers? As believers, we can harden our hearts too, right? As you walk with the Lord for any length of time, you see people, you kind of just get disenchanted with some folks. You hate, you're tired of getting burned. Christians burn you. But in reality, that's a reflection on you. They, they shouldn't alter my view. They shouldn't affect how I view others. The love of God should constrain me. I died to self. Let's look at our third point. Verses uh, 21 through 29. The darkness felt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven. And there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Here we have the ninth plague, darkness. With this plague, Pharaoh does not get a warning. I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, Moses and Aaron didn't go to the court of Pharaoh to negotiate Israel's release. And for you note takers, this occurred two other times. Uh, it happened with the third plague. It happened with the sixth plague. And it's happening here. In the ninth plague. You guys see the pattern? It's the laws of threes. Third plague, sixth plague, ninth plague. In each of those plagues, Moses and Aaron proclaimed a judgment and never confronted Pharaoh. It just happened. God told them to do it, and they did it. And again, Moses is instructed to proclaim another plague, this time pointing towards the heavens, invoking darkness. Now, why the heavens? Why did, why did the Lord direct him to point towards the heavens? I think God was judging the God of the Egyptians, otherwise known as Ra, the sun god. He was the most important god of the ancient Egyptians. The ancient Egyptians believed that Ra was swallowed up every night by the sky goddess, Nut. Kind of makes sense, right? Nut. Okay. Um, and he was reborn every morning. The ancient Egyptians also believed that he traveled through the underworld at night. The Egyptians worshipped Ra more than any other god. And the pharaohs often connected themselves with Ra in their efforts to be seen as the earthly embodiment of the sun god. That's what the pharaohs believe. They believe that I am the sun god. I get up in the morning just like the sun. I'm the sun god. And of course, they, they were decadent in the way they dressed, in brilliance. So when the people saw them, hey, there's the sun god walking right amongst us, a living god. And I think God was judging the sun god. As, as a, he was making a point. I'm in control, Pharaoh. And it tells us there... There was to be darkness for three days. Now, I know a lot of us here are adults. I'm not afraid of the dark. Are you not? Really? Sometimes I walk around the church at night here. Like uh, I'll get a call because uh, the alarm goes off. I have to come here at 4 o'clock in the morning. 
I ain't going to lie. I come in here, and man, it ain't a good feeling. I'll just say that. I go through, I turn on the lights. I'm going, oh, this is not good. You know, it, because, you know, what is this thing, what is this dynamic about darkness? Fear. Right? Every kid hates the darkness, right? Why? Because they don't know it's there. And there's something about darkness. There's a dynamic. You know, we were in uh, uh, Paris about three weeks ago. And we were in Paris. Uh, you couldn't help but to feel the oppression there. I'm talking about spiritual oppression. Because it's a, it's a society that is very progressive and very liberal. And they want nothing to do with God. And then you had refugees on the other side who were Islamic. And everywhere you turned, there's, there's no church there, there that we saw. I know there's believers somewhere, but overall, it was a very oppressive feeling. Very dark. As a matter of fact, I had this uneasy feeling that I felt like, I just want to leave. I just was not enjoying it. And then uh, as we were leaving, uh, you know, we get back, my wife, uh, a week later, we're talking about our trip, and she says, I just felt like leaving. I go, that's funny, I felt the same thing. It's just, it was so spiritually dark. And, and here we have the situation here where there's going to be three days of darkness. Fear of what's not there. But this fear, or this darkness, was much more deeper than that. This darkness could be felt. I don't know what that's like. A darkness that can be felt. The only thing I could equate that to, if I close my eyes, is maybe fog. That's it. But I don't know if you, do you guys, can you equate that with anything else? I can't. Yes. What's that? Not water. <laughs> we need to talk afterwards. <laughs> no, but you're right. I mean, uh, we, we were, you know, we took a vacation to Sequoias. And I remember um, there was a tour to this cavern. And in that cavern, they say, well, this is the darkest place on earth. Okay, yeah, okay. How many places, you know, say the same thing. But anyway, as, as we were in this cavern, you know, we're deep into the cavern. And then they, the tour guide asked everyone to turn off their lights. And they turn off the lights. And boy, the first thing you notice is this loss of sense of depth. Right? And you're just kind of, okay, this is really weird. And then your eyes are trying to adjust, and, and, and then all of a sudden there's a sense of uneasiness. And you could sense it in the people around you. They didn't like it at all. And there were folks in there who were, bless you, they were uh, uh, already claustrophobic. And then you add, you compound that with darkness. And after a while, they're like, can you turn the lights back on? <laughs> There's an uneasiness about darkness. And, and it's to, we're told here that it's so dense that the Egyptians couldn't see each other. As a matter of fact, it tells us they didn't even rise from their place. They stood there. You know, hell is described as a place of utter darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing in teeth. And what was that like, being in darkness for three days? I can only imagine there must have been mass confusion. I could see families trying to gather and find themselves as they, they grope for each other, calling for each other in, in the darkness. Imagine if they were left in the streets. Hey, Henry! Henry! Mary! I, I, I just, I can imagine the confusion. I can imagine this sense of fear. I can imagine people crashing into things, trying to make their way around their home, trying to eat, trying to use the restroom. You know, all those things we, we kind of miss. But it was a reality. And I can imagine as the Jews were, were in Goshen, it tells us there was darkness of the land. I would have to assume that there was darkness there, but there was light in their dwelling. So they had light in their dwellings, but I'm sure they can look outside and they could sense the darkness and they could hear the voices. They can hear the people trembling. They could hear them in fear for three days. And these people, I'm, trying, I'm sure they're sitting there, the Egyptians are trying to figure out what has happened our lives are great. Egypt is destroyed. And now we're sitting here in darkness. How, what's the answer? What's the answer?
Again, here in verse 23, the Jews had light. It's a comforting thing to know that there's light in the home of a believer. Is your home a light? We know the world outside is dark and people walk in spiritual darkness, but is there light in your home? Can people come over and sense there's something different about your home? There should be a change. There shouldn't, I shouldn't find a Budweiser sign hanging in your, cave, your man cave. Okay? What's hanging on your walls? What kind of music is coming from your home? Now, don't get me wrong. I like listening to a love song here and there. I love Spanish music. Helps me stay up with my Spanish. Hey, you watch it. And, but, but at the same time, what's coming from your home? Is there a difference? Can people sense the difference? So is there light in your home? Is there darkness or is there light? And darkness is basically an absence of light. I just can't imagine what it was like for three days. And notice here in verse 24, Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. But Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. (laughs) Pharaoh makes another concession after, of course, the darkness is lifted. He says, everyone can go. And notice what he says, even your little ones, they can go. The livestock, however, has to stay. And, And it's my opinion that he reasoned that, you know, these are slaves. They're not hunters. So how do I keep them back? Well, if they're not hunters, I'll keep their food supply here. So that means they can't get very far and they have to come back because they don't have the resources. So he thought, I'll get them that way. And he's thinking, maybe, maybe, just maybe, Moses and his excitement that, hey, he's going to let us go, won't realize that, hey, they don't have those resources. So he's hoping to snag him. By the time he figures it out, it's too late. And you can almost sense here, and I don't know about you, but I almost get get the sense that Pharaoh is starting to lose ground. He's starting to lose leverage. Moses has had the upper hand the whole time, and little by little, Pharaoh is losing. Folks, Moses has had the Lord. Pharaoh's got what? (laughs) His reputation? His throne? No, he's got nothing. Again, what a great lesson for you and for me. God is our shield. He goes before us. The scripture says that we should not have a fear of man. Not even the king. We respect him, but we shouldn't have a fear of him. What does the scripture say in Hebrews? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's who I need to fear. Verse 25, again, But Moses said, You must also give us sacrifice and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God, and even we do not know what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. He, again, Moses is setting the terms. He, he is stating something that, that Pharaoh understands, being a pagan. Sacrifice. They sacrifice to their idols all day long. He says, hey, we need to sacrifice to the Lord our God too. And as a matter of fact, we don't even know what we're supposed to sacrifice until we get there. So we need to take everything with us. He may want us to sacrifice everything. And here's Pharaoh thinking, man, plan B's gone. It's gone. Everything has to go. Notice verses 27 through 29. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. And so Moses said, you have spoken well. I will never, ever see your face again. Pharaoh is no longer going to negotiate with Moses. And he is hell-bent on not letting the people go. He's hardened his heart to it. And he cannot fathom the prospect of caving in or losing to a slave force or to a couple of old men. Unfortunately for him, he's going to have to eat his words and let the people go. And In chapter 12, verse 31, after the death of the firstborn. At that point, he's going to He's going to succumb. He's going to succumb to Moses' requests. 
And, Mo- and Pharaoh still thinks he could threaten Moses with death, that he would never visit his court again. Moses agrees with them, I'll never see you again. Incredible. You know, again, we know that uh, uh, the next plague, the tenth plague, is the death of the firstborn, and we get to see God begin to deliver the people. But to me, as I look at Pharaoh, again, it's an incredible story. We often look at this as judgment, just judgment alone, but God has been incredibly merciful and gracious to Pharaoh. And yet, we see the image of what a heart a hard heart can be. And and we all have to make a choice. And this man's intoxicated with power and he will not let these people go. And we know God went, you cannot beat God. You cannot. And great lessons for us that we would be sensitive to the Lord, that I would not want God's judgment on life. I would not want his harsh treatment on me. But yet I know that he disciplines those whom he loves. And you know, Lord, thank you. I need that beating. I need that rebuke. You know, uh, I shared with uh, folks in, uh, on Saturday at our potluck that a shepherd, you know, sometimes has to discipline the sheep, often breaking the legs of, of, of a sheep. And, and because they're wayward. Not because he hates the sheep. But he knows where if that sheep keeps continuing on, on being wayward, it's a place that it shouldn't go. And yet we know that God loves us and he will discipline us because he knows the way we should go. So great lessons for us that God wants to deal with our hearts. But we harden ourselves sometimes. We need to be open to him. So hopefully we'll yield our hearts tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you again. And and Lord, um, just as we go through the book of Exodus, what great lessons, Lord. Lord, that um, you don't desire to consume us completely and and Lord, you want us to avoid the darkness. But more importantly, Lord, you want us to have a, a heart that's tender towards you. And Lord, I just pray as we, we just go through the scripture, Lord, that we're open to you and, and Lord, your direction. And Father, is anybody here who, who doesn't know you or, or is just in a place, Lord, where it's not good? I pray, Lord, that they would just repent. That they would just spend time with you tonight, calling on you, Lord. Lord, that they would just uh, ask for forgiveness. And Lord, you restore them. And Lord, that we would be right with you, Lord, especially in these days as we see the days are getting darker. And so, Lord, we just thank you. We love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, folks, um, questions or you need prayer, we're here for you. Okay? Lord bless you. Have a great week.